Hey there, welcome to this excellent church. We believe the word of God is the charter of our lives and God's way to reshape values and reconcile men to himself. We hope this message brings edification, exhortation and comfort. Be blessed. Hallelujah. But I know you Lagos people don't play with those kind of things. Praise God. But it's good that um, I can see you have all rested and you know, that's why really eh, I, I don't think urbanization is God's will. I think there is a good amount of leisure that, that is good for humanity. There is a certain amount of kirakita that does not dollar, that is contrary to the will of God. You know, you remember what that means is there's a certain kind of running around to make ends meet that can, you know, make, push people away from having time to think about God, to contemplate, to have a relationship with God, to have fellowship with God. There's a, there's a certain amount of leisure that is necessary, you know, that for a man to have time to really think about what is important. Hallelujah. Praise God. So it's, it's good that we're here today. Um, today we want to talk about St. Augustine. Who is St. Augustine? I don't know how many of you are, um, I don't know how many people have been intentional about it, but St. Augustine is a very important figure in Christian history, all right? Um, when we talk about Christian history, church history, after the apostles, there are a group of people that are very, very important um, because they helped to explain a lot of things. They helped to put a lot of things in a way that we can easily understand and we can easily transmit to the next generation. Christianity is such a faith that at every point in time, there's always some kind of adversity or some kind of new philosophy or some kind of new idea that tries to destroy what the apostles taught, what Jesus gave the apostles and which the apostles handed over. And in every of these epochs, there are certain men or in every of these age when something like this happens, God usually raises certain men who stand as a kind of bulwark, who stand as a kind of resistance against the flood of what is you know, contrary knowledge of what is wrong information. And God usually does all kinds of great things through these men. St. Augustine is very important. And it's very for us, for all Christians, both for the Orthodox, whether you are Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Protestants like we are, St. Augustine is very central to us. Very central. All of us love him. He's important to all of us. We might have um, disagreements with some minor things, some, of the, some minor details about the way what he said and how he said certain things, but we all love him. And you don't want you guys to understand why we all love him very shortly. Hallelujah. So it's good that you know about him, right? It's true that it's good that you know about him. And then understanding St. Augustine also helps you to understand the genealogy of certain doctrines. Okay, let me say it like this. Every Christian doctrine, every apostolic doctrine was established by the apostles already. And the apostles taught it clearly in the epistles. The Lord taught them and then they expatiated on it in the epistles. The issue is that we human beings have coconut head. And so many times what the apostles have taught will need some kind of contextualization in a situation. Because different kind of situations happen, we find ourselves in different kind of context. And we we'll need to teach what the apostles taught in such a way that in that context, we can understand it and we can take it. So that's where these men, certain men that God pulls up, 
This is where they shine. This is what God uses them for. That they are able to bring out some of these things to deal with a particular issue. Do you understand that? Now, the way they usually bring about this issue and deal with it, the way they articulate it can have a name, a description. And so, from there, you can begin to trace how people um, articulate those, those doctrines. Do you understand? And you, know, you can now begin to see the history of how people say it in such a way. For example, the whole idea of what we now call um, compatibilism, which is the idea that even though man has a degree of freedom in his will, God is also sovereign and God is not reactionary. God is in control. Right? When you want to put both of them together, you'll find that in our own dimension, it can be difficult to flatten. When you think about God who, who is greater than us, in his own dimension, it is not contradictory. So we call it a paradox because both sides are proved. proved. We can see the proof that God is in control. You can also see the proof that humans have free will. Do you understand that? So we don't call it a contradiction, we call it a paradox. When two statements seem to contradict each other and both of them have proofs, they are not a contradiction, they are what? Paradox, right? So we call it compatibilism today as Protestants after 1689. But in the, when the apostles taught it, they just said it. They just said it. He's the one that orders all things in accordance to the counsel of his will. You stiff-necked people do not resist the Holy Spirit. They just taught it. Right? You know, so we in our coconut head, a time will now come where some people are now saying, ah, like you see something about the man called Pelagius now. People will now come and now say, forget to, we human beings, we are good. We are good. Like imagine, Stephen even said, you are the one that resists the Holy Spirit. So we are good. It's us. It's all our choice. So where will you put all these other scriptures? Do you understand that? And so certain men will rise up to help us put everything together and then we'll name it. Do you understand that? So that's why St. Augustine is very, very important. When I, when, I, when I go through a couple of the things that he's very important in articulating for us, you understand why. Do you understand? You understand more. Hallelujah. Um, my references, I have a lot of references. But I found out that I do not want to reinvent the wheel. I found out that um, whoever did the summary for um, um, the Wikipedia page was most likely Roman Catholic. The person did a reasonable good job. So I'm going to take some parts of it, all right? I have other references, works of people like um, Dr. Ryan Reeves. You can also check that out. And a couple of other things read all over the, over the years. Do you understand that? But if you go on the internet and you search, I'm sure you'll find everything that you need to know about him. Is that okay? So I'll just, um, um, you know, I'll, I'll try to put everything well for you. So, Augustine of Hippo, also called Saint Augustine. Hallelujah. So, there's something I like to do when I talk about church history. In your, piece, in your paper, if you brought a note, I want you to do something. Make 20 um, strokes, like tallies, um, evenly spaced. Make 20 of it. Can you do that? On your paper, just count one to twenty, evenly spaced, evenly spaced. There's a reason why I'm doing that. Evenly spaced, count to twenty, and if you can make it on one line, it will be good because it will, it will help you to understand what I'm saying very well. Huh. Fire has done it, right? Now count one, two, three, in the middle of number three and four. Put a dot there or put an arrow and say St. Augustine. 
in the middle of the third one and the fourth one, put an arrow there and say St. Augustine. It will help you to picture this thing very well. And you guys will now understand the reason why we seem to be very, very loud against certain kinds of ideas. There will also be time for discussion anyway. I'll try to move fast. Are we there? Um, sons of Zebedee, are you guys good? No, you are sons of thunder. These are sons of Zebedee. One, two, three. In between three and four. Put a dot and put an arrow saying St. Augustine. Now, at the, after 20, put an arrow and say me. <laughs> after 20, after the 20th one, put an arrow to the space after and say me. Now, then, in between the first and the second one, put an arrow and say Jesus. In between number one and number two, put an arrow and say Jesus. And then you can also put Paul and Peter and any other person you like. <laughs> now, that thing you just saw there is a picture of the timeline of Christianity. You cannot come today and have a new rema. You cannot come today and have a new rema. possible. Let's go on. You'll see some things. So, St. Augustine was born in 354. That's where you put it. And he died in 430. So, Shortly, um, immediately after the number four mark, if you are, if you are, if you are feeling um, nerdish, you can also put it there. So he lived from 354 to 430. Who knows when Council of Nicaea happened? Three, 325, very good. Ah, hey, now, wow, seminarians. Yeah, ah. So if you want to put a, a comma, a, this thing there, you can also put, you know, in between three and four, just before St. Augustine, Council of Nicaea happened. Hallelujah. So let me just, I'm going to um, divide my, the, the topic, the study into three parts. I'll talk about his bio data. I'll just talk about his life, how he was born, his mother, and all that, and all that, how he died, very briefly. Then I'll talk about his, then I'll talk about his spiritual journey. So how, how he went, his, 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 um, his evolution in terms of ideology, and you know, how, what he believed at a certain point, and how he changed and everything, that also very briefly, but I'll major more on his impact, the seminal things that he taught in his books and in his sermons and in his um, commentaries that are very important and how they, how they affect the church generally, okay? So under his bio data, he was born in 354 and he died on the 28th of August, 430. So you can imagine he died on the month after he's named after him, right? Um, he was of Berber origin. Berbers are um, the place that we, modern day Algeria, where we have modern day Algeria today. So he was an African. And Berbers are African, North African, Saharan um, tribes, right? For example, um, um, Fulani people are descendants of Berbers, all right? Fulani people are descendants of Berbers. So, to give you a picture of the kind of person that I'm, I don't know, maybe I've seen North Africans before. Just picture a North African person, like a really light-skinned Fulani person. All right. Uh -huh. So they are not Arabs, because a lot of North Africans too that have mixed with Arabs and everything. You see the traditional North African person and all that. You will see the person is um, um, just imagine a very light-skinned person that. You understand? Like Niger people, exactly. Thank you very much. So, St. Augustine was an African. Um, 
His mother's name was Monica. And she was very, very important to him. Monica. Or Monica. Very, very important because actually she was a Christian. She was saved. And she prayed him into salvation. She prayed for him. All the time that he was going about doing Babalawo religion, later changed another religion, following girls up and down, all those times. She was praying for him all through. She was praying for him all through. So he's a very, very, she was very, very influential in his life. Um, he was born, I don't know how to describe it because I'm not an expert, but he was born with certain kind of privileges because his parents were Roman um, citizens, all right? His parents were Roman citizens. They could afford an education for him. He was very well educated, like really well educated. Um, in fact, his dad, um, his dad, um, his dad and his, their brothers and all that could afford certain kind of luxuries. In fact, when he died, he gave all his property to the church. So he actually came from some kind of privilege. Now, I'm not an expert, so I don't know. I can't contextualize this in our, in our context to see whether the person was very rich, upper middle class, lower middle class. I don't know how to contextualize it, but I know from the history we know, I can tell that he, has, he had some level of privilege. He was well-educated. And when he was young, he went to school, he learned, um, um, his first name is Aurelius, by the way. He's also called Aurelius Augustine, right? So at the age of 11, he was sent to school and he learned Latin literature. He, he was well, he was well versed in the religions of the time, all the different religions of the time, but he learned Latin um, literature. Um, at the age of 17, he went to Carthage to continue his education, and he learned something called rhetoric. So in the Roman Empire, rhetoric was like a course, was an important thing. For the Romans, the ability to talk and conv convince people was con considered a skill that was very, very prized. The ability to if you go and if you Google and go and listen to some of go and read things like Cicero's speeches. When you see someone someone is called Cicero, read his speeches, or Marcus Aurelius read his speeches and all those kinds of things. You understand that Roman people believed very much in oratory, the ability to speak. You understand if you read a lot of antiquity history, you understand a lot of the things that Paul was saying. When Paul is saying that I did not come to you with the enticing speech of man's wisdom, he's telling you that in their days, a man can talk and talk. And you'd be like, yeah. He said, no, that's not what I'm doing. So rhetoric was actually a thing whereby you actually learn it and then you teach wealthy Latin children. The, the families of Latin people, you teach their children rhetoric so that they can have, because it was considered a very valuable skill to go into politics. You know, the Roman Empire was, they had a lot of, one of the important career parts that you can have is in, is in politics, where you are, first of all, a local equivalent of the LD and local government chairman, and then you find your way into this, you become a consul or become a senator, senator votes to a consul, and then after that you become an emperor and all that. So Rome was very big on this political advancement kind of thing. One of the most valuable skills that you can have to advance in those, you know, that kind of thing is the rhetoric, the ability to talk, the ability to show up. You're the Senate, you hold your toga, white and red, and you do like this, and I'll say, Carthage must be destroyed. Where you, you, you do speech and make everybody go to war. Hallelujah. So he was very good at rhetoric. In fact, okay, let me just jump ahead of myself. In fact, he was quite good that um, after, when, when, he grew, when he grew older, he became a teacher. 
first in, in his hometown, a Carthage, or then, no, not in Carthage, there in Tagaste. And then later he went to Rome to set up a teaching school um, to teach people and all that. But then he had some issues because in those days, um, you teach people what they pay school fees at the end of the term. <laughs> the problem was that he would teach people at the end of the term, they would not show up. So Baba was frustrated and, you know, who was coming into the picture and all that. Then he had some connections and then they helped him to apply for one very um, sought-after role. And the role was to be the um, chief rhetoric person of the Senate or something like that, where you had one writing speeches for people in the Senate and all that, that kind of thing. So he was, was in a very, very prized position and he actually got the position, right? So that's that. Let me say a little bit about his life, his um, love life. Um, when he was young, he had, a, he had a babe. Let me look for her name. I've forgotten her name. Um, when he was young, he had a babe that he dated for like 17 years. And she gave birth to a son for him. His name was Adiodatus. Yes, when they, were, when they were young. It's not when they were young. She gave birth to him for him. 15 or so. 15 years or thereabouts. But he still broke up after everything. Because his mother, his mother wanted him to marry someone proper. So the person was like a concubine and she was from a lower socioeconomic class. There are a lot of things that people don't appreciate about Roman culture. I was talking to my wife today about some things. Kai, you know, there's something you don't know understand about Roman culture. You see, the life you are living now, it's Christianity that shaped it up, you know. All your belief system now, whether you're a Christian or not, is actually Christianity that taught you. Your sense of morality was inherited by the fact that Christianity spread around the world. In those days, the cornerstone of our own ethics as Christians is love. The cornerstone of their own ethics in Rome was strength. The strong take the weak. The weak consider themselves lucky when the strong does not take them too much. And that's how it was. Nobody was complaining. Everybody accepted their, their fate in life, even to the point of their sexuality, the, the kind of sexuality that they had. Roman people did not believe in... The way we talk about sex now, this is what we say... Our current um, sense of sex is very Christian. This idea of a man and a woman come together, I love you, if you cheat on each other, is not really good, and all those kinds of things. Um, homosexuality is not good. All those things are very Christian ideas. In their own days, they didn't even have a word for it. In those days, preferring a man and preferring a woman or preferring a boy or preferring a small girl were just seen as um, um, speck. The way you are saying that I, I like my, I have speck. That's the way it was. Some people speak is women, some people speak is men, some people speak is boys, some people speak is girls, some people speak to babies. Yes. Mm. And it was not wrong. It was not wrong. We reach Roman emperor, we just take his sleeve, six year old boy, and everybody will know, say, that's my, that's my babe for releasing tension. Like, nothing. Everybody's just normal. It's when Christianity came and saved all of them. I think say, no, we shouldn't live like that and all that. So, after 15 years, he broke up with his babe, but she gave birth to a son for him, and his mom wanted him to marry someone that was like, um, you know, someone of higher socioeconomic status and everything. But he didn't marry her at the end of the day. When he was about to marry her, that's when he now got saved and decided to become a priest. <laughs> now became a priest and refused to marry, but he had a son, Adiodatus. They said he was a very intelligent boy also by his contemporaries and everything. Um, you know, that's that. Um, what else is worthy of note, of note in his life? Okay, when he was young, he went to join a religion called Manichaeism. 
Manichaeanism, Manichaeanism or Manichaeanism or Manichaean religion. It's a religion that started in present-day Iran. That was a Persian, Persian religion. And it was a weird kind of Gnostic religion that believed in light and darkness. They believed that good and evil are constantly fighting in this world. And good is most embodied by physical things like the body. And the soul is like the good. And so the more physical things get, physical things are evil. So good things are trying to escape the evil. All these messed up funny things, all right? So it was a syncretistic religion. The guy that came, his name was Mani. The guy that founded the religion, his name was Mani. He said, in the third century, he said that he has a new religion. Whenever someone says they have a new revelation and they are the fulfillment of all the prophets, he said, Jesus, Buddha, Zoroaster, all those people, he's the one that has come to perfect and fulfill all their prophecies, like Guru Maharaji, Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and Anko Anko. Hallelujah. I put Salih Wasallam, so you can't be disrespectful. Right? So, anybody that comes and says he has come to fulfill something, you understand? They're all in the same group chat, okay? Right. So, he joined that religion um, when he was um, younger, but after some time, he said the thing did not make sense to him again. So, he left. He transgender one religion that's something about new creation and all that. But he had a lot of issues, right? He had a lot of issues. He was very skeptical, person and everything. But when he now got to Rome to get that job, he now met Bishop Ambrose. <laughs> Bishop Ambrose, the man of God. Do you guys know who Bishop Ambrose is? Maybe we should. We'll talk about him another day. He's the kind of bishop that used to, used to challenge emperors. There was one emperor that did something very bad. The guy told him, while he's communicating from the church, I'm going to hell. <laughs> um, Bishop Ambrose was another very important picture. He's the one that made us to start singing in church. Many people don't know. But before Bishop Ambrose, up in the fourth century, people don't sing in church. No, they don't. All this one that, that hymns is part of service and all. No, when you come, you pray, hear word, go home. Yeah. So Bishop Ambrose now said, no, the hymns that were singing to one another and all those kinds of things, we should sing it in church too. Let's sing the hymns in church. Say, okay, all right, that's a good idea. So we start singing hymns in church. So think of Bishop Ambrose when you're singing, all right? Mm-hmm. So he met Bishop Ambrose, and Bishop Ambrose took him in like a son and taught him God's word. Um, he took him in as a son and taught him God's word, um, showed him the truth, showed him love. And then he said one day, he read the biography of Anthony of the Desert. How many people know who Anthony of the Desert is? Anthony of the Desert was the first person that we can call an official monk in Christianity. This guy said he wanted to escape, you remember? <laughs> Antonio of the desert was someone that said he wanted to escape the sinfulness of this world. So he wanted to go inside the desert to be alone away from all the um, people of this world and everything and all that. So, so he went inside to stay inside one castle deep inside the desert in North Africa. Funny enough, people don't realize that North Africa was actually like the cradle of Christianity in a lot of ways. Not the cradle, but it was a very important part of Christianity. Mm. So this guy would go into the bush. He said he wanted to be away from because sin is in the world. Sin is in the structures of this world and everything. So he wants to stay away from people so that he can be pleasing unto God. And so that's where the idea of being a monk actually started from in Christianity. He was the first person. And people now started looking for this guy. Because people were now like, there's a holy guy that is in the bush that doesn't want to stay with sin and everything. Then they're not going to be looking for him. You now see your guy, I'm running away from you people. Leave me alone. He'll say, no, he will not go to another deep place again. He'll say, where is he? Inside the desert. I'm our Lord. So, you know, this one of going to mountains to go and look for prophets and everything. These guys, they'll go inside the desert, deep inside the desert. They'll go and look for him. Now, this is the strangest part. 
When they carry their sick to go and look for him, the sick will get healed. So what do you think people will do? <laughs> if you like, go to the moon. So he read the story of Anthony of Desert and it touched him and it softened his heart. And then something interesting happened one day. He said, let me read it exactly as it is. He said, one day he heard a child's voice say to him, take up and read. Talking about the Bible. He said he heard a voice, a child's voice telling him, take up and read. So then he took the Bible and read the book of Romans chapter 13. And that was the part that read now. I know that this is not, this is not encouraged. I don't want to go and say, Lord, open my Bible. Lord, show me where I should read today, right? But he heard a voice in his ear that said, take up and read. And so he took Romans chapter 13, and then he read verse 13 and 14. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and heaving, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. And that was it for him. So he gave his life to Christ and is resolved to be a preacher. He resigned his job as a rhetorician or rhetorician or whatever you want to call it. And then he started doing ministry. And he loved preaching a lot. So he was a great evangelist. He was going about preaching everywhere. Later on, he became the Bishop of Hippo. And when he became Bishop of Hippo, he was preaching almost every day. But he insisted that as the Bishop of Hippo, he would still preach to his congregations on Sundays. So he did a whole lot of preaching throughout his life. Many stenographers have a lot of his messages that were written. It's said that he wrote, probably had like 6,000 to 10,000 messages, but I think like up to 500 still survive till today. Um, so he had a lot of messages that he preached, and he was really, really brilliant. Now, after he got saved, the Holy Spirit, there was something that you should know about um, St. Augustine. St. Augustine was unique in, in one, should I say unique? But one thing that speaks out about St. Augustine is that St. Augustine was a man that the Holy Spirit really convicted of sin. You know, there's a way that you do evil or you commit sin and it's not really a big deal to you. You don't really feel bad. That kind of thing. St. Augustine is the kind of man that, the kind of experience that he had that made him to write the confessions and helped him to really articulate the issue of original sin and how our wills are corrupted towards the line of evil is that he said when he was young, him and his friends one day, they went to go and steal someone's food. And the reason why they stole the food was that he was not hungry. He comes from a comfortable family. He was not hungry. But because they said the food is forbidden, that's why he wanted to steal it. He said now, in retrospect, he, was now, he, he agonized over that thing. That what kind of evil spirit is this? That you want to steal something because they say don't steal it, not because you are hungry. And, you know, he talked about it a lot and about people's will and how it was broken and everything. Now, St. Augustine is someone that really felt the sting and the evil of sin. Not in the sense of self-condemnation. This is very manifest in his, in his preachings. He understood forgiveness and justification. He understood it properly. But when it, whenever evil was done, he understood the sting of it. And he felt it. And he thought the same. And this is very, very strange, but I should just add this at this point, that true revival, true revival is a revival that will make people understand the evil of their sin and embrace the salvation that Jesus afforded. Revival is not going to happen because plenty of people were healed of their sicknesses and all those kinds of things. No, it's not. 
People are going to be healed and they're going to go back to their sins. Revival, that you will see people's lives changed, is one. And that's what happened in George Whitfield's time. That's what happened with Wesley. Revival is when people, that's what happened with Babalola, that's what happened with all these men. Revival is when people are taught of their evil and they are taught to repent from the evil of their ways. When that happens, when that happens, that's when you're going to see a real revival, a real growth of the church, a real stirring up and desire and longing for God. Because forgiveness of sins is the only thing that we know is not a matter of common grace. You must receive what Jesus has done. There's so much common good in the world. Material prosperity is a common good. Good health is a common good. God is the one that gave people good genetics. There are some people that will just have generally good health. God is the one that gave us wisdom for medicine and all that. Trust me, in my, in my, um, in my industry where we work, there are some things that folks are cooking. Folks are cooking stuff. There's medication that if a person is in heart failure and the person's heart muscles are getting tired and are getting weak, this medication reverses it. You see someone that had heart failure today that was about to die, start taking it, some weeks later the person is going to the gym. I'm not joking. Real. You go outside, you can buy it. I'm not telling you the name before they say I'm using my distance to me. You understand what I'm saying? There's medication that works like tiny robots. You take the fat in your body and take it out into your liver. You have high lipids today and this is about clogging your heart. You see, it's God that gives you mommies all those wisdom. It's the common grace of God. But there's one thing you can never think, you can calculate, you can never get for yourself. You cannot save yourself from your sins. And that's what Jesus died for. And so that's why it is not strange that the men that God uses for revival are men that understand the evil of sin. Hallelujah. Church, I want together. Anyway, so he died in 430, and when he died, he died when the Roman Empire became, was conquered as we know it, right? That was the end of the Roman Empire as we know it. Certain Vandals, or what we call, what they, what they call, what they called barbarians. Interestingly, some of these Vandals from Western Europe had converted to Christianity, and they were, but they were Arians, so were they really Christians? Many of them were Arians. They first conquered Rome, later they came to um, or what we call Algeria today, they went, went to Tagaste, Hippo, and they conquered it also, and he died, he died during the siege. Um, when he died, when he died, the people, the, the people that came to conquer left, because they, they left, and then they came back, they burnt everything, but they left his church, and his library, and his books, and everything that was inside. Hallelujah. Of course, it is not surprising that, the, that he was colonized by the Orthodox Church, and, um, you know, he was canonized by the other Orthodox Church. He's a saint, and all and all and all. Hallelujah. Now, let me quickly go into some of the things that he was notable for. I didn't even know we're taking so much time. Let me go into the, his, his impact, his spiritual impact on the church. I want to talk about certain things that he's known for. First of all, is I, lo- I love the way this, this person put it here. The first thing is something that has to do with um, Christian anthropology. That is what we um, um, people, what we recently call Man is a spirit, soul, and body. Hmm? He actually talked about the fact that man is soul and body. And you know, I talked about this sometimes ago. Maybe I should teach it again. Um, the nature of man, human anatomy. What's the name? The tripartite anatomy. Thank you very much. <laughs> tripartite anatomy, right? 
So, in, you know, in the scriptures, actually, many places, like if you listen to the message, you also understand better, as St. Augustine really helped to explain this, is that many places, um, the Bible does not try to differentiate between a man's spirit and a man's soul. It was just the external part and the internal part. Because the truth is that the man's soul and spirit cannot be really divided. You can't really separate it. You will never find a man's spirit without his soul. It's just the inner man and the outer man. So he was the first person to do that dichotomy of the soul, meaning everything that is not seen in a man, and the body, which is the flesh of a man. And he used this, one of the things that he really did was to really show the dignity of the human body, how that, because the, the man is soul and body, man is the inner man and the outer man. is not separated. That means that even the body also must be dignified because he redeemed the body. Your body is his. You know, and St. Augustine really used this to explain why it had a lot of ramifications. For example, that is the reason why you cannot say um, fornication is just in my body. My soul has been saved. How many people have heard that thing before? You have not heard stuff. <laughs> see them. See former heretics. <laughs> Fornication is just in my body. My, my spirit has been redeemed by the Lord. No, man is so inner man and outer man. So, obviously, if you use your body for something, you are the one sinning. Um, no, the body is to be taken care of and it's to be dignified. It's not, when, even when a man dies, right, he used to teach that even when a man dies, the man's body should not be treated anyhow and all that and all that. So that's one thing that he really helped, um, you know, to... to to systematize. Hallelujah. Praise God. Okay. Concerning creation, St. Augustine taught something that many people already taught, people like Christ Christ already taught, and even from the second century, a lot of past, a lot of teachers of the church already taught. In fact, recently I got to know, thanks to people like Michael Jones and all that, that this whole idea that the world was created in seven twenty-four hours was actually a new idea. How many people knew that? It's not older than like 200 years old. Actually, historically, like St. Augustine thought, St. Augustine actually thought that when God was creating, he said, let there be, and everything actually happened. He now thought that Genesis chapter 1 is God explaining to us the logical flow. So just like they always do other solutions and say, what is the logical flow of this and all that. So St. Augustine's teaching was that Genesis chapter 1 is the logical flow of how creation could have happened because you cannot have fish before water. So God had to show you that water, fish, and all that, and all that, but that in actuality, when it was happening, we, we would not be able to put it in our own frame of reference. We cannot put it in our own frame of reference. So when God said, let things be, those things began to be. And he had a lot of things that he said, a whole bunch of things and all that, which makes a lot of sense. Because even historically in Christian church, the early people will tell you that one day before God is 1,000 years. How can you say God is happening in your own seven, seven, 24 hours and everything? Right? I mean, how was there a day before the sun was even created? And he said on the first day, but the sun was not even created and all that, right? Now, let me just do a quick segue here. A lot of American people, fundamentalist-ish people, don't like to hear what I just said now. Because they will think that we want to give in to progressive Christianity to say that there's evolution and all that. We should be coming down. Because even before evolution of the theory of evolution was even ever instituted, a lot of the church fathers already taught that Genesis chapter 1 was not 7, 24 hours. All right? So St. Augustine actually taught it. So he taught that Genesis represents the logical framework and the passage of time. In fact, um, Augustine's writing on Paul actually mesmerized a lot of atheist philosophers on the way he talked about it. He's the one that we're going to talk about things like the eternal present, how that we are talking about eternity, 
We say we cannot count eternity. What is heaven like? How many billion, billion, billion years are we going to be with God, worshipping him and everything? So God said, calm down. There's something called eternal presence, whereby it is one present moment, but it is not the length of it, but the depth of it. And the experience of it is like eternity. This one is not something we do. We can't discuss it here, right? This is theology stuff, okay? But, you know, St. Augustine really helped to establish that. So, that. There's something he did about ecclesiology. I don't want us to go into it. I want us to go into the more um, interesting things. Um, He did some systematic systematic in terms of ecclesiology, and this one was because of the schism of the Donatists. Let me not go into all that, so I don't... It's already 723. But basically, he was saying that there's an invisible church and there's a visible church. The invisible church are those of us who are actually saved, the spirit of just men made perfect and everything. And there's a physical church that people come to and everything. That physical church, you could have unbelievers coming there. You could have wheat and tears and everything, but there's a spiritual church. And that's why it was not saying that the Donatists were a group of people that had a schism with the church. They were following a certain guy called Donatus or something. And this schism started from the time when um, there was... Um, um, persecution under Diocletian, have we? So under Diocletian's persecution, some people burnt their Bibles and gave up other Christians, and then I said those people should not be, those people are not members of the church again, but some people said, no, we can forgive them to come back into the church. There was a whole thing, there was a whole thing. But those guys started their own church, they were not part of the Catholic, Apostolic and Catholic Church. Now, some of those guys were giving communion, and so there was all this criticism of whether those people are even saved at all, and whether the communion they are taking is real communion and all that. So he was saying that there's a spiritual aspect of it whereby even if the person is not part of the Catholic Church, if the person is doing it in accordance with um, the prescription of the scriptures and everything and all that, the person is taking something good and all that. So but that's the whole thing. Let's not go into all that, right? Eschatology. St. <laughs> Augustine was a premillennialist when he was growing in the faith. And he believed that the Lord is going to come in a physical 1,000 years. So he was a kind of Premillennial DSP kind of person, right? Um, we had a series on eschatology. Those of you that cannot follow us, may have to listen to it so I can really understand. Because we can't go into all that now. So he was a premillennialist initially, right? But after some time, when he grew up spiritually, <laughs> amen, he became an amillennialist. Hallelujah! <laughs> Praise God! Okay, people cannot understand. So all these unsaved DSP people, postmillennialists. You're on your own. Hallelujah. So, um, he's, he taught that Christ rules on the earth. The 1,000 years is happening right now. Christ ruling on the earth through his triumphant church. And the tribulation obviously was happening right now at the same time. Hallelujah. And for full disclosure, I'd never even read Augustine when I said, this is a and this is the one that makes sense among all these things now. So, all right, so. No. <laughs> Hallelujah. Mariology. Now, Augustine gave a lot of regard to Mary. He taught, like um, Sister I.J. taught us some weeks ago, that, um, you know, he, he, he's one of the people that defended the fact that Mary was always perpetual virginity, that she was always a virgin throughout and everything. But he did not ascribe to her deistic um, de, um, um, divinity. He did not ascribe to her divinity. He just said she's someone that we should really hold in high regard and she was always a virgin, and she's Theotokos, and, and all that, that even after she gave birth to Jesus, she still remained a virgin after. And of course, like, you know, like she also taught us and explained to us, they believe that the, children, the, the brothers of the Lord that we know were his cousins 
And just like in the olden days, just like Yoruba people will say, your cousin is Aburomi, Egbomi, and all that. That's the same way James was probably his cousin, but not really his. Mm. <laughs> I'm, 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 what will I say? Hallelujah. Now, original sin. Very, very important part of St. Augustine's work. St. Augustine was the one that began to explain the concept of original sin. And the way he explained the concept of original sin had two parts to it. And let me just say it in summary. There is original guilt, right? And there is original sin in the sense that we inherited in nature. Original guilt is the idea that by just being born of Adam, you are guilty already. That means even if you've never committed a sin, there's a guilt that you have by reason of being born as a descendant of Adam. Then there's original sin in the sense that we inherited the corrupt nature from Adam, and because of that, our wills are bent. And this is where St. Augustine really excelled. He explained the fact that there's something at work in us called an evil desire, such that after the fall, this evil desire prunes, it tilts our will towards doing evil, right? So we are free in the sense that we have choices. However, there's something at work in us which you call the concupiscence. It just means propensity, desire, um, um, you know, desire to want to do evil, to want to do evil. That is the reason why they'll put before you an option. This is God's picture for marriage. That a man and a woman will come together in love and a commitment to each other and they will only consummate that love after they have sworn that commitment to each other and from them, children will proceed coming into the world, into that loving union and because nothing will break them, those children will also grow up in a godly family and they will be taught of the Lord. That is the picture. Anything outside of that is wrong. They will put that picture in front of you which is objectively true. There is no man here that if I paint a picture of you and your wife being right or die, and nothing coming between you and your children are with you and they love you, everybody knows in their head that that is good. But you will see babe and be fornicating. Something contrary to that picture. Why? How can you know that something is good? Your senses can tell you that this thing is good. But you will see something that is not good. You're sleeping with someone that you might not get married to, jarring your soul. You could get pregnant and then you have to solve the problem by killing your baby. You know, you might break up with a person and have to sleep, wake up with that person. There's nothing that comes good from going away from that picture. You see it, but you still do it. Why? That's where he was lamenting. I saw food that was not my own. I was not hungry, but I still wanted to steal it. That is the evil concupiscence. So our natures were wounded by concupiscence, which affected human intelligence and will, as well as affections and desires, including sexual desire, and all these things. So, there was a man called Pelagius. <laughs> there was a man called Pelagius. I want to talk about him a bit and what he said. So, Pelagius had some students and they were very good at talking and everything. And they, they, don't, they didn't believe in original sin. They believed that every human being is born without any kind of influence on their will. That their wills are completely and truly free. And so, because of that, if they see God, that means that a person can choose to never sin in their lives and to sin. And by that extension, if a person sees God, they will recognize God and believe in him by themselves because their wills are completely free and untouched. 
Do you understand that? So what that means is that there are some people that don't need salvation. Do you understand that? There are some people that don't need salvation because that means that there are some people theoretically that because their wills are clean and they will never do evil in this world, um, they can decide to never sin. And so what is Jesus dying for? They will never sin. Do you understand that? And the other implications of it, it also, because when you're talking about soteriology, it has a lot of implications that if you ask, you might be arguing with people for something going in a particular direction. You will not know the implications. When they now show you the implications, you now have to start defending it. Do you understand that? One of the implications of that is that if some people will never sin and it is completely up to their choice and everything, what that means, let me not, I don't think I should go there, so I don't derail this conversation. Let me just focus, right? So that's what the religious guys were saying. Of course, one of the implications of that was that man essentially is the one saving himself. Because that means that God just did something, put it somewhere. A man can say, okay, I've committed sin, but his will is completely free. He will now say, ah, salvation is good. Let me take it by himself, without God's help. The Holy Spirit is not the one convicting him by himself and all that. So when he gets to heaven, he will say, within the world you go. It's not as if I'm the one that I saw this and I saw it was good, becoming down God, you know, that kind of thing. So he resisted the Pelagians um, very, very loudly, all right? So... So yeah, it's important to know that all the councils affirmed original sin, and also, I think this is worth because I know some people say something, some people think separately. Original sin is, didn't start with Saint Augustine. Saint Augustine just articulated it and gave it a name. All right, he just articulated and gave it a name, just like we have compatibilism today. But the apostles thought both in the same way. He's the one that just came and articulated it. The whole idea that we inherited an evil nature by reason of being children of Adam. Um, was manifestly taught by the apostles and everybody that came before um, St. Augustine. All the major church fathers, all. Origen, Irenaeus, Tertullian, even Polycarp, everybody. Where they are te- There's no way to teach Christianity. There's no way to teach Christianity and preach to a person and say, you are sinful, you need Christ. The person will ask you, from where? Where, where else? Do you understand that? So um, the idea that St. Augustine is the one that formulated or started the doctrine of original sin is not true. All right? Um, but it's important to note this. These two different concepts I just explained now, the idea of original sin and original guilt, original guilt was not affirmed by all the councils. So you should know that in your mind. Original sin, that all of us inherited a sinful nature, is manifestly true. Original guilt has implications. It means that, um, you know, it has, let's not go into all that, but not all the councils affirmed it. So you should know you should know that. Hallelujah. Okay. Predestination. And we should know St. Augustine is the hero of the Protestant Reformation. Luther, Calvin, all of them. It says Vingli. That's obviously because it was Vingli. It was originally liked. So that's why they tied him and that's why he died in the war field. And, <laughs> and, and, and tied somebody with chain and drowned him in the river. Anyway, for Luther and Calvin, St. Augustine was their hero, right? Um, St. Augustine taught that God orders, orders all things while preserving human freedom. He taught a combat, compatibilistic um, picture. However, there's something interesting for you to know. Prior to 396, they noticed that in his sermons, he believed that God's foreknowledge was based on, that God's foreknowledge was based on people's choices. So he was an Armenian, in quotes. Prior to 396, his messages thought 
that God knows those that will believe. And so that's why they are the elect. That God knew those that will believe and went ahead to create the world. So, predestination, right? Before 396, St. Augustine thought that the elect, people that will be saved, God knows them based on their choices. So God looked and saw their choices and then created the world knowing that those people will be the elect, right? And then he changed. When he was fighting with Pelagius in defending himself from Pelagius and all that, he began to explain that we are the ones that it is pride for us to assume that we are the ones who choose God or that God chooses us in his foreknowledge because of something worthy in us. And that's what Pelagius Pelagius was not, because the argument between them got into the issue of election. Do you understand that? That how come some people are saved? Is that an election and everything? And of course, Pelagius will tell you that it's nothing like election, it's everybody's choice, and God knows those. So when they look at the Bible and say there's elect, Pelagius will now tell you that God knew those that would choose. That's why he created the world and everything. Ah. And I'll say, ah, me that I used to say this thing before. I'm not with you, actually. You know, that's how arguments makes people too. So I just had this position, and I began to say it is pride for us to say that we are the ones that chose God, or that God chose us because of our choice, meaning that we are the initiators and God is reacting to what we do, all right? He did not teach what people call double predestination. It doesn't appear that, because a lot of people try to claim that he taught double predestination. Nothing in what he wrote shows that he taught double predestination. What he taught is something akin to what we believe today, which is that God is in control, Ah, I'm sorry. Double predestination means that double predestination is the belief that God picked some people to go to heaven and God picked some people to go to hell from the beginning, whether they like it or not. From the, before you were born, God just said, you, hell. You, heaven. You, hell. You, hell. Uh-huh, no. That's what double predestination is, right? Because the, this conversation about election can devolve into that. There's nothing about that. Uh, St. Augustine never articulated or said that God picks some people to go to hell. The doctrine of election is that there are certain people that God will have mercy on them and reveal himself to them so that they can believe the gospel. And those that go to hell choose to reject the gospel, choose to live in sin, choose to refuse God. Or some people God will have mercy on them and reveal himself to them. So that seems like what um, St. Augustine thought. Hallelujah. Praise God. So, um, those are two very interesting things. St. Augustine believed in infant baptism. He believed that you should baptize. <laughs> he believed that you should baptize your children. Pastor, <laughs> please hold these boys now. <laughs> he believed in um, infant baptism. He believed in the sacraments. He believed in the real presence of God. We are the ones arguing transubstantiation and consubstantiation. This is church and scholarships, I'm sorry. Transubstantiation means that when we're taking the communion, the Roman Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox, do the Eastern Orthodox believe that? No. Okay. The Roman Catholic Church believes that the bread you are eating is the actual flesh, like the meat of Jesus. And the wine you are drinking is his blood. Now, it doesn't taste like blood, it doesn't look like flesh, but don't worry, your eye cannot see it. It is actually the bread and flesh, or blood and flesh of Jesus, right? Consubstantiation is something that Martin Luther explained. Now, I need to say this a lot. Many of the church fathers talked about the real presence of God, that Jesus' flesh and blood is here. 
they did not have those words in their mind. So we cannot accuse them of saying either constants that you don't try. Do you understand that? It's an anachronistic reading. What that means is we're trying to copy and paste our own understanding on them. Mm-hmm. You're giving me ginger. Thank you very much. So what he taught is that Jesus' flesh and blood is really there. That means that Jesus is there. We're participating of something real and it's not just a mere symbol. All right? So, um, I think another very important thing for us to know is that it's the just war. Um, St. Augustine really taught that Christians should be pacifists. This is very important because it was coming at a time when it was needed. St. Augustine taught that Christians should be pacifists. That should be your personal stance. You should never be a violent person. You should not seek to kill someone or, and all that. But being a pacifist also requires sometimes defending peace. For you to maintain your pacifist position, it means that sometimes you have to defend peace. So that means that there's sometimes when you have to defend your people or your life against the life of violence, against violent people. Now, he, he also taught that a just war cannot be preemptive. That means that you cannot go and kill people before um, in advance. You understand? It's purely self-defense. That means Christians, Christians, Christians are purely, Christians should not seek to destroy people. But if someone wants to attack you, you should be able to defend yourself. He said it's even wrong for you to be able to, def- to save people's life, the innocent, and not save their lives and not defend them and all that. But he didn't go into the details of the criteria of what it what means a just war is. What is the criteria and all that? But Thomas Aquinas cooked that one. So people who are interested in legal stuff, I'm sure you'll have read a lot of Thomas Aquinas and everything. So... A lot of other things. St. Augustine taught against slavery. The Roman Empire at the time had more slaves than citizens. Slavery was a normal thing. It's just, it's just normal thing. It's just, you own a car. You own a car. There's nothing wrong in having a car, right? So, it's fine. St. Augustine came and taught and said everybody should free their slaves. Slavery is a sin. And in fact, he joined it also with abortion. He said every kind of infanticide. Many people don't know, but the Romans used to also kill their babies after they are born. Yeah, if the baby looks funny or is a girl, like the Chinese are doing today. St. Augustine taught against it vigorously. He taught against slavery, systematized it that Christians cannot have slaves. A Christian emperor cannot have slaves in his country. You cannot practice it and you cannot have infanticide. Every kind of abortion, obviously from the didactic, you can see that Christians have been thinking the same way for a long time. It was against infanticide. Some, in, back then, if you get pregnant and you don't have money to take care of your child, Romans will kill the child because I don't have money to take care of the child, but the child will not be useful for me and everything. So Augustine taught against it vigorously. He said it is wrong. He said you should not even sell your children because people were into the practice of selling their children. I can't take care of the child, so I will sell the children. He's very, very funny. People, human beings have not changed. Why do people kill their babies today? I, I still want to go to school. St. Augustine said I should tell you. They are going to hell. I'm just joking, you know, but okay, I'm not joking at the same time. <laughs> now, no, no, no. Now, some people may be online who may have all these kind of existential questions. We're joking about it, but um, God has mercy and all that. But the takeaway for you to know that that thing you are doing is evil. It's wrong. It's evil. It's a great evil. Don't do it. It's wrong. Okay? Now, to the more weirder parts, sorry, to the weirder parts of St. Augustine that you need to know. 
St. Augustine felt that libido was a sin. <laughs> he felt that that's why we are always. So, I'll tell you on the good side, Abby. Shebia will tell you the other side to her. So, well, he felt that sexual libido was a sin. He felt that before the fall, people would come together by believer's authority. What that meant is, you just say, sweetie, it's time for us to have a child. And I'll say, arise, arise, and have population. That that urge, I'm not, so, I'm not joking, that's what he said. He said your, the, 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 uh, the, 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 the body becoming ready for sexual act and everything was, before the fall, was an act of the will. So you just tell your body, it's time. And the body says, yes, sir. And then, he, and all that. He feels that that desire, that that desire, and his own systematics was, the only true affection should be towards God. So, if you have an affection towards people that is outside of God, because everybody understands what I'm saying, right? When you're having sexual arousal, you're not thinking of God in that process, right? And Paul, and St. Augustine was like, you must love God. If you're not loving God, you're you are wrong. So, sexual arousal was lost. And even in marriage, what makes a man attracted to his wife is still lost. So, but technically, he didn't say the act of sex in marriage is a sin. But he said it is like a kind of necessary evil that is all right. In marriage, it's a necessary evil that is all right because marriage sanctifies it. Do you understand that? Uh-huh. So, just take it like that, right? So, so, so he said that, you know, the sexual urge was wrong. And you know the weird thing is that it's not the only one. This guy's uh, spiritual father, Origen, too. He also thought that sex was a sin. Right? That one even castrated himself. I'm talking about Origen. Yes, he did. He did. So he believed that there was something fundamentally wrong with our bodies after the fall that was broken and all those kinds of things. And because of that, that's why we have um, sexual urge and all that. So, um, yeah, St. Augustine was a big deal. I'll stop here. There are a lot of other things that he contributed to Christianity, but those are the major things that, you know, you guys would um, want to know about. Hallelujah. So that is the Bishop of Hippo, St. Aurelius Augustine. Any questions before we close? I'm sorry I took a lot of time. I thought we'll have more time to discuss and everything. He died sick, old, in his old age. He died sick and old. They said that when he was, when he was about to die, he put up, told them to put up the book of Psalms and he was reading and praying and, you know, asking for forgiveness and for all his sins and everything. Asking God for have mercy on him and stuff like that. So, but he died old, he died sick. He died under the siege, when they were besieging um, Hippo. He died when they were besieging Hippo, so that's how he died. Questions? Any other questions? There's something that is commonly said, and which some people also have issues with him, was that they felt that his Manichaean background might have seeped into affecting his um, doctrine when he was defending against Pelagius, when he was talking about, um, when he was beginning to sound more deterministic in his preaching about election, that he was beginning to sound more deterministic and all that. Well, I'm not a scholar yet, but kind of disagree a little bit. Where I would say that his Manichaean background affected him was in the way he was thinking about lust and the body, that there's something fundamentally wrong with it. I would definitely agree with that, that I don't think that was necessary, even though truly he's not the first big Christian philosopher to think like that, right? But I would say make sense and all that. But 
that sense of being sounding deterministic or fatalistic, what that means, the idea that God has already determined your outcome, that kind of feeling and that kind of talk. That kind of feeling is something that you, it's, it's an impulse that human beings always have. That's why Islam has it. You know, in Islam now, you believe that everything is the will of God. Wherever you find yourself is the will of God, right? Whatever is happening to you, your station in life is the will of God. That kind of thing. That impulse has always been there. If you look at the apostles' books and you read it well, you'll find that that sense of being deterministic was there. The Gnostics were deterministic people. So I don't necessarily agree that, you know, that's why it was like that. But anyway, scholars are always debating those kinds of things, and that's that. Any questions, please? Just a question. Take the mic and ask your question, just to your head. <laughs> um, hello, everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask if, f- first question is, is being sin conscious a bad thing? And especially because I'm not very sure about Augustine, but I think there was a time we were talking about Martin Luther and we were talking about how Same he was very, too. very, yeah. Uh, yeah. about his sin about his sins yeah. and then I want you to if being I want us I want to know if Augustine had that same kind of impulse and also help me expatiate a little more on original guilt and how that could have thank you uh, yeah good okay so yes Luther and Augustine had that I'm, I'm sure that's why they even liked each other oh, sorry Luther liked um, Augustine Luther was like that too. The evil of his sin was very strong on his consciousness that this evil I've done, God, please don't judge me for it and all that. Sin consciousness depends on what you mean because the word is a loaded word. Um, Let me use the scriptural words for it. There's something called godly sorrow and then there's something called condemnation. If what you mean by sin consciousness is godly sorrow, it is not wrong. That means that when someone has done something wrong, as a child of God, and if you are regenerate and you have the Holy Spirit, you should feel wrong for doing something wrong. It should sting your heart. It should bite. You should throw yourself before God and all that, right? There are certain ideas more common today that feeling bad about the evil you have done is wrong. Please, run away from that doctrine. Godly sorrow is very Christian. Godly sorrow is very Christian. What is wrong is condemnation. Godly sorrow is, I feel guilty for what I have done and I am throwing myself before God to have mercy on me. Condemnation is, I feel bad about what I have done and I am running away from God because there is no hope for me. Do you understand that? So your godly sorrow should lead you to go to God who will forgive you because he is faithful and just. God will forgive you. But if you now say, I've condemned, I'm done so wrong, I can never be fixed, I can never be, who are you? Are you the one that made yourself? How can you say you can never be fixed? You did not make yourself. Your maker is telling you he can fix you. Go to him. So condemnation is wrong, but godly sorrow is good. It is Christian. Do you understand that? Now, concerning original guilt. The reason why original guilt is very, is very, is, is an issue is because Original guilt connotes or implies that a baby that is born, if, it, if the child is born now and dies 10 minutes later, the child is going to hell. Now, 
if you are a Roman or a Greek or a pagan, that idea might not affect you because it doesn't mean anything to you. But if your worldview has been, has been shaped by Christianity, where you believed in just recompense, where you believe that people should be treated justly according to what they have, it will seem wrong. How can a newborn baby just go to hell just because the child was born? It doesn't make sense, right? Now, I'm not going to go into the theological arguments of what the implications of rejecting it or accepting it, because there's a whole lot of discussion about it. But in Christian tradition, in all the councils, a lot of the councils were not comfortable with that idea of original guilt that you didn't do anything wrong, that even if, even if you live a righteous life, so to speak, that, that even if you don't do anything wrong, you are still guilty just for existing. Right? But one thing that all Christians agree on is that everybody, every ch- everybody will sin. The moment they have a sense of consciousness and self-awareness, they begin to do evil. I have little children, I understand what it means, right? The moment they have any sense of self-awareness, they want to take somebody else's property, they want to do something, you say, what did you just do? And all kinds of things. Don't do this, that's when they want to do it. So if once a person has any kind of self-awareness, if you're Adam's child, you will sin. And because of that, every man needs a savior. All right? So mind you, that's the reason why Augustine wanted people to baptize their children. So that as a child is born, just save him. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, as follow up to that question on original guilt. Um, so a scenario, right? Nobody is also born righteous. Hmm? Nobody is also born righteous. So if you don't believe in Christ, for example, even if you live your life deaf, dumb, even unconscious, you are still not righteous in a way. Hmm. So how do you <laughs> reconcile that with uh, original guilt? And you, know, I've not, you know, I've not told you, I've not picked a side. You know, I've not picked a side. Theoretically, there is no such person. If you are a living human being, you will sin. At that level, the conversation is already ended. The question of original guilt usually comes from hypotheticals, right? Now, I'm sure some of you are already thinking it. Okay, so what about babies that die? What happens to them? We don't know. Okay? We've talked about this during the eschatology, this thing. We don't know. The Bible does not say, the apostles do not say, and all that. What we know is what happens to those who reject the gospel who had an opportunity to see the gospel, to hear the gospel and rejected. Questions like all those kinds of things, the apostles did not tell us, the Lord did not reveal to us. Therefore, we don't know, and therefore we will not make a big issue out of it. We will trust on God's goodness and faithfulness that he will give everybody according to what they would deserve. So, you know, concern me. So, theoretically, even if you are deaf and dumb, you can think. You've seen all the popular musicians that could not, that was blind, but was still doing shino. I remember when I was in UI, those boys on Kuti ground floor. Those boys, that's when I know that someone is handicapped does not mean the person is not in Magode. Because the depravity of the Magode, they have it too. Ah, you see brothers that cannot see that. That's fornicating. <laughs> What's going on? I got in school. There were brothers there that could not speak, that could not hear when we were in school in UI, first ground floor, Kuti, and 
I don't want to say funny stuff, right? So, and they were with us, all of us, on the path to, <laughs> you understand? But like, you expect that someone being handicapped to help you in your righteousness. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. Why? Human beings' wheels have been tilted towards, because we're, all, we're only talking about sex, which is the obvious one. Sexual sin, which is the obvious one. But a lot of other things. Pride. Pride is a sin. Anger. Sloth. That means being lazy. When you are meant to do something and you don't do it, you think it's a good thing. Of course it's wrong. A lot of other things that we do. So there are no such people. Do you understand? So there are no such people. At that level, everybody needs a savior. At that level. You know, and so all the other theoretical part of original guilt, that one is theological stuff, is not necessary for church. This thing. Yes? I can't hear you. <laughs> a question just popped in my head um, when Kyrie spoke. Um, the question is on original guilt. So say you have a guy. Mm-hmm. I know it's hypothetical, but it's plausible and it happens. You have somebody born autistic. Born on autistic. Autistic. Yes. Hmm. And the scale is high. Mm. The person can't rationalize. You've tested and all that. But the person is alive. Right. I don't know. And the person has self-awareness. You might not just be consciously. You get what I'm saying? Uh, no, I don't uh-huh. know. So, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not even, have I ever told you guys I know everything? No. I don't know. Maybe Floka has an answer. So, this case you are saying is real. If you go to your body, there is a foundation where they have those children. And I can tell you for a fact, because I've lived with some other, because I schooled in Jeopardy, I went there, so they can't sing. <laughs> Bro, there, is, there is a boy, there is a boy called Tucker. Hmm? If you ask him two plus two, he can't tell you. But if a woman with passes, he can actually slap her. Because he, Are you serious? Yes. If you go to, I'm not like, you go to Jeopardy, Aerobodo Foundation, you can, you can check it on Google. The one of the this is, is is my family, so they will see all of them. In fact, they do prayers and deliverance. They do that some of them. Wait, are there people like Down syndrome? About like okay, autism yes, aside, Down yes, syndrome, Down syndrome, oh, Down syndrome. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Well, thing is, I have some experience with. I have some experience with Down syndrome, right? Um, with people that have Down syndrome. And of course, there's a skill of, on that stuff. Yeah. And I get what Flo is saying. But what I'm saying is, I think what ori- original guilt tries to do, which you're trying to protect us from, is trying to say things that are too high for us to understand. Yeah. But what is, what I, because they have it, um, I was just thinking about that. Flo looked at me one kind when you said um, or, original guilt, you're undecided. And he was like, he sees. Why somebody can lean towards? I said that. I didn't see my stance here. Uh, okay, so, yeah. So yes, why you will not tell us your stance and why Flo is giving me eye like I'm in trouble this night? But um, I, I I don't know because what original sin does is it kind of gives you a limbo before you actually sin. Mm. Do you get my point? So I, I don't know. That's what. Well, until I see, for, as far as you know, as far as teaching is concerned, just like we just said now, until we see someone who has never sinned. Let's not have the conversation. There's no point. Oh, exactly. Until we see a human being who has never sinned, then we don't even need to worry ourselves about that. Every other, that one is purely theological stuff for us to be arguing on our own. Not, yeah. Okay, so similar to KG's question on, um, what was it again? 
Sin, sin consciousness. Yes. There's also another perspective. Okay. Not just the guilt, but also like the kind of lifestyle that you are so afraid of sinning that you are running away from participating in life, like the one you talked about, mm. the monk. So that's another perspective too. And sometimes mm. you see it in some people that mm. attend really conservative mm. churches that they are so afraid of committing sin. Yeah. So I, that's I don't know that's what very very good point. What's the name of that thing again? Uh, asceticism. Asceticism. Yeah, that is sin consciousness to the point where you are trying to save yourself from running away from this world and everything. I think that's the place where sound doctrine really helps. Because there's actually a way that you can tell people the evil of their sin, that it pushes them into this kind of ascetic lifestyle of I don't want to even commit any sin and everything, and because of that, you're not living your life and all that. Actually, the Christian life, the Christian picture, is that you go out into the world and live above sin, not run away from the world to prevent yourself from sin. So, we go out into the world, and despite the fact that we're being bombarded left, right, and center by temptation, we can live, you know, um, above all those things. And it's true, actually. Yeah, I should say this expressly, that the, the asceticism, the idea of being so afraid of fear, of sin, to the point where you cannot live in the freedom of Christ is an evil. It's wrong. I know that that is one of the things that people were overcorrecting, and they got into a place where you say, just confess your righteousness in Christ Jesus. No. That is actually a legitimate thing that I should talk about, right? That we should always be aware of. But the truth is that in every generation, every generation has their problem that they usually want to emphasize, right? In our generation, these people I'm looking at, the idea of being afraid of sin to the point where you run away is not their problem. <laughs> I know the people that have this problem. We know where they are that we have to teach them that Christ has died for you, live in the freedom. Mm -mm. These ones I'm looking at, they need help. <laughs> Praise God. Okay, sorry. I have something to add on the asceticism stuff. So I get why, especially people from circles, I get why people from our own circles would not necessarily align with asceticism in general. Um, and more, even more importantly, the reform camp has a very strong sense against asceticism in general. But when I look at the early church documents, I don't think the case was identified. That looks like more of the, what the Amish do, like the Amish yeah. in America, right? No, holiness so movements, holiness yeah, Pentecostals holiness, were yes, like that. Exactly. So the Amish, they just they don't live with, they don't use cell phones, they live like nomads, right? Because, and it's actually a religion, and they have people like the Quakers and all that. But for asceticism, I think the issue was, uh, because if, we're, if, if we with the statement that the Christian life is a call to self-denial. It's like denying yourself of worldly pleasures that you may focus on him holistically. So, because there's a way everything that sounds good can turn into something Yeah, evil. moderation. But, I mean, if there's, any, if there's anything, the spirit of the ascetic fathers, the desert fathers, the desert, might be something that might, that might help us today. That is, yeah. we have too much good, um, too much pleasure that we yes. enjoy and then we sacrifice yes. those things. So, very good, very important perspective. What he's saying is this, and these are both sides of the conversation. You're not supposed to run away from the world because sin is in the world. Guess what? When you're running to the desert to run away from the sin in the world, there's the evil concupiscence inside of you. So, you cannot run and leave your shadow behind. You understand that? Can you run and leave your head behind? No. However, at the same time, there's a measure of self-denial. You cannot say because there's sin in the world, let me just be watching Netflix anyhow. And let me watch in Twitter anyhow. 
Let me go in on the internet anyhow. I can watch any kind of movie. What can we do? There's cuckoo sin in the world. No. There's actually a measure of self-denial, right? Because God has given us all good things richly to enjoy. So there are some things in the world that we ought not to run away from, that we ought to enjoy, but up to a certain point that those things have become a snare to us. Hallelujah. And of course, we all know these things. And there is a general guardrail with respect to this for everybody. But in specific Christian works, there will be some fine variations based on the kind of issues and besetting sins that we have individually. There are some people that maybe when you are coming from, you started very early with sexual exposure, and because of that, the concupiscence for, um, sin is, or for that sin is very high inside of you. You will not even be on Twitter or on Instagram. See that Instagram? Ah. You will not even go there at all. There are some people that they might not have that much, and so they can do social media, but maybe their own problem is that once someone should hype them, they will just start doing like this. So that you know that when people start hyping, you just need to start begging them and saying, please, oh God, my help and all that help. So everybody knows what it is and so, you know, that kind of thing. So yes, that's, those are the two sides to it. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at This Excellent Church. God bless you.